the Bible. This semester we've been talking about the book of Exodus and what it looks like for God to bring people from slavery to freedom. Let me pray for us here on the front end, then we're going to jump in. God, I pray that you would send your spirit to open our, uh, the eyes of our heart, that we may see and behold uh, Jesus tonight. And we pray that when we do that, that we would see him more beautiful than we've ever seen him before. And I pray that we would see what he's done for us as more gracious and kind than we've ever considered. And I pray that it would impact us and it would change us. Would you be so kind to do that in our midst tonight? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine with me for just a moment that uh, you're back in high school and you're with some friends and you're hanging out at their church uh, after youth group. And you're kind of out, you know, talking and stuff out in front of the youth group building. And um, this car drives up. And it's a man, a man gets out of the car, or out of his truck, actually. And it's the guy from uh, down at the local, like, concert house. So here would be the BOK Center. And you recognize this guy because you've been to a lot of shows there. And he's the guy who mans the will call uh, the box office right there. And you see him, and you're like, man, what's this creep doing here at the youth group? Uh, and he hops out of his car, and he begins to explain to you what's just happened. You see, what happened is, is that they signed Justin Bieber to come play uh, at the BOK Center. But the problem is, is they thought he was coming next month. And he's actually coming this Friday. He's coming in four days. And so this guy is going crazy. He's running around frantically. He's trying to unload a bunch of these tickets. And he's doing that by offering these $50 tickets to see the Beebs for 5 bucks. Now, little does he know that you uh, have a room at home that's painted purple. And you would have gladly paid full price to go see Beaver. Well, uh, so at a $5 opportunity, you and your friends jump at it. And so the six of you uh, scrounge up $30 really quickly, and you've got tickets to go see Beaver. And you couldn't be more excited. And then you notice he drive off, drives off, that he goes over to the middle school, which is next door, and he gets another group of people together, and he sells them a bunch of tickets. And then he goes over to the Sonic, where all kind of the goth crowd's hanging out, uh, and he sells them a bunch of tickets. I mean, this dude's doing his job. He's going um, to sell a lot of tickets. Well, uh... What happens is that after you buy your tickets from him, you've given him your email address so that he can email you uh, the receipt and the e-tickets and all that stuff. Um, about two days later, you get an email from this guy, from the BOK Center. And he explains this dilemma. He says, look, uh, we made a mistake. In the contract, we didn't realize this, but in our contract with Beaver, he says that we can't sell the tickets for less than face value no matter what. And so, if you want to come to the show, you're going to have to bring $45 a ticket with you, and you bring your ticket to the window, and we'll put a stamp on it, or we'll sign the ticket or something like that, and then you can proceed on to go to the show. It's Beaver. So you're going, right? There's not even a question about it, so you're going. You get to the BOK Center, and you walk up there, you and your buddies, and when you go to the office, he grabs your group of tickets, and he takes a Sharpie and he writes his initials on there. He tells you to go on. He sends you over to the entrance. And you go over there and you flash the, you know, the Ticketmaster person there. You flash him your tickets and kind of look over at him. And he gives him the sign. They let you on in. So that's the natural transition into reading this passage. We'll come back to it in just a minute, I promise. Let's read from Exodus chapter 11, mostly chapter 12. This is God's word. So Moses said, 
Thus says the Lord, At about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments, I am the Lord. This blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you, where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house for someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. This is God's word. Uh, if you've been with us these last, last few weeks, there's been this building tension leading to this point. Because this nation of Israel has been in slavery in the country of Egypt. And God had visited them and said, I will come and free you. I will redeem you. I will purchase your freedom. Egypt has no power over me. I am the sovereign Lord. I am God. And I will bring you out and I will make you free. And so last week we looked at these terrible plagues um, that God sent on them, which were a picture of what sin does to us. It undoes us. It decreates us. And the last of these plagues was this one we just read about. God promised and He said, this is the fullest picture of what your sin does to you. It kills you. It kills you. Worshiping anything other than then the God of the, of the Bible is ultimately going to be your downfall and your ruin. And it will be the death of you. And so this final plague was that the firstborn of Egypt would be struck down, the firstborn of every household. Look, 
on a far, a far more serious, on an exponential, exponentially more serious level than the ridiculous story I opened up with, um, there was a mistake that had been made that needed to be made right. But it wasn't just one person who was at fault. Pharaoh wasn't just the only one who had messed up in this. He was simply the leader of a nation that wholeheartedly did not follow God. And God gave them these successive plagues, begging them to say, it's going to get worse. Turn from yourself and turn to me. And they wouldn't do it. Pharaoh wouldn't do this as their leader. In the last plague, God shows them what sin deserves. And He orders the price of every firstborn son throughout the whole land of Egypt. But there's a tension in that. Because Israel, God's people, were within the land of Egypt. They were there. So is God going just to, is He just going to take their firstborn also? No. And we saw that through the passage, but I want us to see it again in a little more detail. The first thing we see is that God passes over. And He does that, and it's such great news that He is gracious and kind to His people, and He passes over them. But in so doing, He gives them very, very explicit instructions about what that Passover will look like. And I don't know if you noticed it in the passage, but He kind of walks down through exactly... Sorry, this mic's uh, kind of sliding down. Um, He walks down and says, this is what you must do. This day, he's like he's saying, basically, reset your calendars because the rest of your lives is going to be oriented around this day right now. This is hitting reset because what I'm about to do is going to so define, utterly define who you are as a people that your whole year, your whole calendar will be based off of it. And so what he tells them is that 10 days from now, on day 10, you head of the household, you will go and take a lamb, get a lamb, purchase a lamb without blemish that is one year old, which would have been the most, the, the most innocent but yet perfectly mature animal of the age. One year old. And if your family's not big enough, grab your neighbor's family and you all go get one lamb, one year old without blemish. And he goes on and says it can either be a sheep or a goat. You can be a sheep or goat. And you keep that sheep or the goat, that lamb, that little lamb, until the 14th day. And at the fort, on the 14th day, at twilight, when the sun starts to go down, you kill the lamb. And you go in, you prepare the lamb, but you take its blood and you put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of your house. Eat that meal with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and eat it quickly. Because as you're eating in that night, I'm going to pass through the land of Egypt. And I'm going to bring my judgment on sin against every house in this land. But if I see the blood on your doorpost, I will not take your firstborn son. What does it mean to trust God? What does it mean to trust God? Um... Put very simply, it means that we take God at His Word. We take God at His Word. Now, the Bible is God's Word. It is self-attesting to be God's Word. And anyone who 
wants to look at it and say that it's just a document. It's only a document you know, compiled by several different writers, you know, some of it several thousand years ago, uh, or many thousand years ago, and some of it just a couple thousand years ago, you know, in the first few centuries A.D. Anyone who wants to say it's just a document compiled by men is wrong. It is not just that, because its own claim about itself is that it is, is inspired by God, that it is literally breathed out by God. And so to trust God means that we take Him at His word, that we take Scripture at face value, and that we submit our lives to it. That we trust that what He has given us in Scripture is actually what He has intended for us to believe and how He intends for us to live. Now think about this. Think what it would have been like for these families as they sat around that dinner table. Think what it would have been like for the eldest sons in those families as they sat around the dinner table. You know, God had given them this promise. He said, here's what you're going to do. If you want to be saved from this judgment that I'm bringing, you do this with the lamb and do this whole deal, and I will pass over your house. I think if you're the oldest son, you're sitting there, and your dad's done this whole deal, you're going to be looking at your dad saying, Dad, I sure do hope, I sure do hope God's telling the truth. I sure do hope that He's going to be faithful to His promise and really come through on this, because if He's not, I'm dead. It would have been an extremely tense meal as they're sitting there, and especially at that hour when it says that, that God sent His angel out, or He went out and began killing these firstborn children for their sin. Imagine the screams coming through the background outside. You hear it everywhere. You hear the blood-curdling screams of mothers losing their children, of fathers losing their sons. And you're sitting there wondering, is it going to happen? God, are you going to be faithful? Or are you serious? Are you going to be true to your promise to deliver us? And there they would have sat, holding to that promise. Now, what does it look like for you and I to trust God? They, had to tr they were called to trust God in this very moment. What does it look like for you and I to trust God? It means simply that we take Him at His word. Um, I had a, a friend who kind of brought me onto this topic here the last few days. So let's talk for just a moment about it. Let's talk about your perfectionism. This article that he um, sent to me kind of talks about perfectionism in these terms. It says that you're struggling with an unhealthy perfectionism when your sense of worth or well-being is tied to your achievements. And that goes along with a simultaneous belief that any work that's less than perfect is unacceptable. That anything you do that's less than the absolute best possible thing that you could do is simply unacceptable. And that it will lead to criticism. And it kind of, this article goes on and gives some evidences of how do I know if I'm struggling in this unhealthy perfectionism? And it says these things. If you ever find yourself being depressed, if you ever have that nagging sense of, I should do such and such, or I should do more, or I could do more, therefore I should do more. If you ever struggle with shame and guilt over your performance, if you ever find yourself just trying to save face after you've done something that's not perfect, perhaps, 
or maybe even something that's just quite honestly embarrassing. Or if you retreat in shyness in, in, or in procrastination, or if you have an unhealthy amount of self-deprecation. These things all point to this idea that you don't find your worth and your well-being in what God has said of you if you're a Christian. That you are loved, that you are valuable, that you are worthy because of who you are, not because of what you do. And so, let's kind of flip this around. So how would trusting God affect this? How would trusting God kind of counteract and do uh, war against our perfectionism? It means that you take Him at His word, that you are finite. That you have limited capabilities as a human. That you are not the Creator, you are part of His creation. And so you won't be able to do everything, and that means you will struggle at some things. And there'll be some areas of your life that you, quite honestly, won't be as good at, and that's okay. That's actually part of your, how you're created to be. For some of you, trusting God means that getting a B or a C is absolutely the best thing that can happen to you. That is the most healthy thing for your spiritual life, is to die at the altar of getting A's on everything. Is to die at the altar of needing your teacher to affirm you in some way. Some of you, it means, trusting God means that what others think about you doesn't define you. And that's going to lead you to this. That's going to lead you to be able to say, you know what? I just don't want to do that. I'm not going to serve on that committee because I don't need another thing to do. I'm so stressed as it is. I want to have time with my friends. I want to have open pockets in my schedule where I can, I don't know, rest. Trusting God gets very practical. For others of you, trusting God means that you aren't going to doubt that what God gives you is exactly what you need. Trusting God means that you can look at what God has given you and say, you know, this doesn't necessarily feel the best, but it is what's best. For some of you, that means a time of singleness. For some of you, that means that you've been rejected by a grad school, is it quite possible that that's the best thing that could happen to you right now? That that is actually what God wants for you. And He's calling you to trust Him in that. To trust God for others of you means that you offer forgiveness even when you've been deeply wronged. Even when there's people around you who have really hurt you in real ways. And it doesn't mean that you ignore the hurt in some shallow and superficial and fake way. But it means if you've been forgiven by God through Jesus for the vast, massive sin against God, that it means that if you don't and you're unwilling to forgive the people around you, the New Testament is clear about this. It means you're not a Christian. And so if you can... Verily look at your life and you know of people who you have not forgiven deep in your heart. And friends, you don't understand how much you've been forgiven. So to trust God means you're throwing yourself on His mercy and on His grace and you're saying, God, will you take care of me? Just like those families would have been thinking as they sat around that dinner table on that night. God, are you going to take care of us? Are you going to deliver us? Are you going to do what you promised you would do? 
why would they have been so nervous? Why would they have been so nervous? This is so key to understanding the whole episode of the Passover. Friends, they would have been nervous because they knew that they needed to be passed over. And we know that we too need to be passed over. Return with me for just a minute to the story I opened up at the beginning. As you come to the BOK Center, the ticket office, and the guy, you know, he writes his initials on there and you pass on through. In that moment, you and your youth group friends are going to be tempted to think, as you look around, everyone else is dishing out money. You're going to be tempted to think that you have received entrance in this kind of free pass, as it were, because you were the good kids. That he remembers that, oh, those are the kids from the youth group, and that's why he's writing his initials on my ticket. You're going to be really tempted to think that. Just like in this passage, when we think of Israel and Egypt, we're really tempted to think that Israel were the good people. That they were God's people, and that obviously meant that they were doing things right, and they were doing things well, and then you had the nasty Egyptians, and they were obviously the terrible, heinous people. Well, the Bible actually doesn't let us do that. Because just not that much later in the book of Joshua, Joshua looks back, Joshua would succeed Moses and bring Israel into the promised land. And Joshua looks back and tells the people this, Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness, and put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. Wow. Joshua's looking back and saying, yeah, your ancestors, the ones who were delivered out of slavery, they weren't good either. They were worshiping the Egyptian idols too. And it actually gets a little more clear later on in the Bible when Ezekiel, a prophet, is looking and telling people to, he's calling them to repentance, and he's saying, don't do what your ancestors did in Egypt. Listen to what he says in Ezekiel 26. And on that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things from your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me, and they were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. That ought to be category-blowing for us. Because this, these people are sitting around this meal trusting God that what He said is true, knowing that they had been unfaithful. There's a guy named Mike Wilkerson who wrote a great book on uh, the book of Exodus, kind of a low-level commentary, but he says this. Imagine, if you will, will that, faith, that fateful midnight when the Lord's messenger of death passed through Egypt from house to house. Think about this. Imagine him arriving at the first home and looking through its windows and seeing the idols of Egypt strewn about. Clearly an Egyptian home filled with idols and idolaters. And so he enters and claims the life of that family's firstborn. And he moves on to a second home, more idols, and another firstborn son is claimed. 
And then he moves on to a third, and looking through its window, he finds the same Egyptian idols. But then he looks up and finds the blood on the doorpost. And he passes over. The categories of who gets rescued and who gets redeemed by God in the Bible can't be good people get redeemed and saved and bad people don't. Because Israel wasn't good. And you and I are not good. And those people out there, you know, the bad people, they're really not. They're not any worse than you are. Their sin may look different. It may be more visible to the outside. It may be more condemnable. But they're no different. The Bible's message is resoundingly clear. There are none who are good. There is no one who loves God. Everyone turns to his own way. And the more you think that that isn't true of you, that it's not actually true of you, I know some of you would say, oh, yeah, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus, but when I ask you the last time you really wrestled with your sin is, it's a blank stare. You don't know. Sin isn't a present reality for you. Some of you, it's something you used to do, but now you're kind of in this pseudo-state of sinless perfection, you know? You're, you're a Christian now, and so your life's really good. And that's just... That's stupid and that's wrong. And and you're lying either to yourself or just to everyone else around you. And I don't know which one it is. It's complicated. So why then does God come and tell the Israelites about the Passover? Why, why them? If they didn't deserve it, if they weren't good, why would God go to such great lengths to save them? Well, Ezekiel goes on in the next verse in that chapter 20. He says, but I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they live. You see, here's what's going on. Is that many, many generations before these people who were literally being set free that night, many, many generations before, God had made a promise to their great, 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 great grandfather, Abraham. And Abraham didn't have any children. And God made a promise to Abraham and said, Abraham, you are going to be the father of a great nation. A multitude beyond number, more than the stars and the sky. You are going to be the spiritual father of that great nation. And I am making a promise to you that I am going to make that happen. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God, that he would have all these descendants. Even when he had no children, he was trusting that God was going to make that happen. And he did. God gave Abraham a child, Isaac. Then after Abraham had Isaac, God said, Abraham... I want you to take your firstborn son Isaac up onto this mountain and I want you to sacrifice your son to me. That makes no sense. Okay? God just promised he'd make a great nation. He gives him a son and then says, uh, by the way, I want you to kill your son. Abraham believed God. And he took Isaac up the mountain, bound him on the altar, was about to carry it out, and God said, stop. I wanted to see if you trusted me. Clearly you have says that Abraham believed God and he, he was credited with righteousness. God saves Israel because God promised He would save Israel. He promised to Abraham that He would keep a people for Himself and He would not let them go and receive final judgment. And He's being true to that. He's doing it for the sake of His name, for the sake of His promise and His covenant. He is not letting this people go. He is redeeming them.
You need to know that. You need to know that by them trusting God, when those families trusted God with the lamb thing, that it was costly to them. They had to go out and buy a lamb, and they had to carry through with this. If you'll remember, they were in slavery. They didn't necessarily have a lot of money or a lot of you know, disposable income. So it would have been extremely costly for them to do this. And yet they did it. The life of another was paid as a ransom for theirs. It cost them. And he told them, we didn't read it, but in chapter 12, he tells them, you will celebrate this Passover every single year. Do you think, let me ask you this, do you think that they had to be talked in to that celebration? No way. That would have been the, it is the height of their story because it is their story of freedom. And so Jews, even today, still celebrate Passover. They still do it. It's how God brought them from slavery to freedom and how their freedom was costly. We fast forward just a little ways to the book of Luke, chapter 22, when thousands of years later, at one of these Passover meals, it's one of the Passover meals. They're just celebrating what had happened so long before. And this young rabbi named Jesus has gathered a group of his friends around him, a group of his disciples, his students, as it were. He, he's gathered them around him, and they're sitting at a table. And at any Passover meal, there would be three things. There would be the lamb, bread, and wine. It's interesting that when Jesus sits down with his disciples at the Passover meal, there's what? Bread and wine. And he looks at them and he says this, This is the bread of our affliction in Egypt. Remember our families and how God freed them? No. This is what he says. This bread is my body. It was my affliction which will lead to your freedom. This blood, this cup, is my blood. It will wash away your sin. Friends, as you think about that, where was the lamb? There was no lamb on the table because the lamb was sitting at the table. Jesus Himself the Lamb of God, the spotless, without sin, pure, perfect Lamb of God, was sitting at the table as if to say, I am your Passover Lamb. I am the climax of the whole story of the Bible. I am everything that this Passover meal has pointed forward to for thousands of years. It climaxes in me. It climaxes in me. And he would look at them and say, And tomorrow I will go and hang on a cross. And my blood will stain the wood of that cross. And when God sees that, He will turn away from anyone who trusts in that blood for forgiveness, who puts that blood upon their life, who's, who that blood begins to define who they are. John, the Baptist, got it. He looked at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. 
Jesus died at twilight, that very same hour when all, all of Jews throughout history would kill their lambs, Jesus Himself died. He was the great Passover lamb. Look, I, I don't really know how to say this to you, with, but I love you. I love you. I love all of you here. And I'm going to tell you this very plainly. That you are guilty. That you are guilty. And that God has looked through the front window of your hearts and He has seen blatant idolatry. And He has seen you live and bow down to and worship and seek after all sorts of other things. And He has looked at you and He has pronounced a sentence upon you. And it is a sentence of death. Your sin and your idolatry and turning from God deserves death. What will you do with that? You can't undo that. You can't go be good enough to do that. You can't perform enough to do that. You can't try and say, Ooh, God, look at what I did. I shared the gospel seven times this week. Or, Ooh, God, I had 12 straight quiet times. Or, Ooh, God, look how much community service I've done. Those things are great. And I hope that your heart wants to do those. I really do. But they can't save you. The only thing it can save you is you cling to the Passover lamb. You cling to Jesus Christ. And you claim Him as your only hope. And then I would say this. Go find a local church and join yourself to a local church that celebrates the Lord's Supper. And it regularly talks about that meal. And think about how Jesus in that very meal is saying, this is the picture of your salvation. Let this be a visible sign as you eat it of whose you are and how you've been redeemed. This food for your soul, which is prone to doubt. So look, the four things of what this means for you very practically. Four results of clinging to Jesus as your Passover lamb. How do you know when you've been forgiven? What will it do in you? These four things. First, I would suggest that it would humble you. You... You can't be a Christian and walk around and judge other people and think you're better than them. You simply can't. It would have been like the Israelites with the idols on their shelves looking at their Egyptian neighbors or, you know, wherever they were across town saying, Ooh, ha, 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 you got what was coming. You can't do that. If you're a Christian, all self-righteousness has to die. It has to. And so that means that you can't judge other people who don't do some of the good things that you do. The only difference between you and them is that God has opened your heart to respond to the gospel and to see how beautiful Jesus is and to trust in Him. That's the only difference. So it humbles us. It brings us low. It gives us a right view of ourselves and others. The second thing it does is it makes us thankful. If you are not regularly and deeply confronted by your sin and how it is that you turn from God and that you don't love Him with your, all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength, and then how you don't love others with that same enthusiasm and passion. If you aren't disturbed by that, if you aren't disturbed by your apathy for God, then it makes you really, really hard to be thankful for what He's done. Unless we see the sinfulness of our sin, we will never see the beauty of what He's done. And you won't be thankful. And your life will not be characterized by thankfulness. Thirdly, it makes us forgiving. If you've been forgiven by God and you cannot or will not forgive others, and as I said earlier, you're not a Christian. 
Christians are marked by their ability and willingness to forgive at all costs. Peter asked Jesus, Jesus was saying, how many times, or you've got to forgive so many times. And Peter said, now how many times? Seventy or seven times? And Jesus said, you don't even get it, Peter. It's infinitely more than that. You forgive every time you're wronged because I've forgiven you and you've wronged me a lot. Christians forgive. And lastly, Christians tell. We tell. I don't think we... I don't think those firstborn sons who had been so gloriously saved that night, I don't think we would have had to like, beg them to tell people. They would have been so excited that God graciously and mercifully passed over them that it would just be part of their life. They, they would be thinking about, how do I tell the people around me that I love about this? How do I get this message out? I just want to tell how I've been freed. We're not asking other people to be like us and be good. I just want to tell them how I was free and tell them the story. And so Christians, for all time and all places, have been people who tell the story. I know some of you want to tell your story. You want to figure out what that looks like and how to do that. Please come talk to me. Come and think about being on a ministry team because we're going to talk about that kind of stuff. About what it looks like to, to share this good news of God's redemption. If you're a Christian, your life ought to be oriented toward these things. These things ought to describe who you are. So I simply want to ask you, do that. Do that. Let's pray.